Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Ann Harris-Carter. Ann has more than 25 years of experience in corporate leadership. A graduate of Yale, Ann conceived and created diversity strategy roles at two corporations, including the former May department stores. We discuss her work with Iowa's Healthiest State Initiative, with a focus on the Make It Okay campaign to reduce the stigma around mental illness, as well as her bipolar II diagnosis. Anne shares with me her parents' struggles to buy a home in an all-white Cedar Rapids neighborhood. I appreciated Anne's insights on diversity and inclusion and how we might cultivate more diverse and inclusive teams and organizations. Really appreciated Anne's insights. It was an honor to have her on the podcast. Links to Iowa's Healthiest State's Make It Okay initiative and more details about the Harris family can be found in the links in the episode description. I hope you enjoy the episode. Anne, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd be happy to. Thanks so much for the invitation. I was born and raised in Cedar Rapids and, um, you know, was, was involved in all sorts of activities as many, many students are, um, but was particularly serious about music and violin in particular. And so um, I went away to college um, in Connecticut and uh, ended up pursuing a career in business and also ended up pursuing a career mostly east of the Mississippi River for about 30 years. Um, So I went to college in Connecticut. I started my career in Connecticut. I um, started my family in Connecticut and then uh, gradually made my way back to the Midwest and returned to, to Cedar Rapids after 30 years. Well, thank you. I uh, want to talk to you a little bit about uh, uh, so many things to, to talk about, but one, just starting with music. Um, so you were a music major, but then you went into, into business. Can you tell me uh, why, you, why you chose music as your major? Yeah. So I was, um, again, just a, a really, really serious about my studies. Um, I studied both piano and violin, but toward the end of high school focused on violin. So, you know, for those who remember Allstate Orchestra, I played in Allstate Orchestra all four years. I was co-concert master my senior year. I played in what used to be the Cedar Rapids Symphony Orchestra uh, my senior year in um, in high school, and and now many will recognize that entity as Orchestra Iowa. So I really was interested in, or or at the time, um, aspired to play in a major symphony orchestra. And before making a decision to go to Yale, had contemplated applying to a conservatory and Somewhere along the way, a few people suggested to me, you know, you really should get a liberal arts education. Things change. You never know 
what you may want to end up doing. And so, um, true enough, I um, realized a couple years into college that there were really other things that I wanted to pursue in life. And truth be told, I really hadn't kept up the level of discipline that I had when I was in junior high school and high school from a um, practicing standpoint and just working at my craft um, and knew that I wasn't going to make it in a top tier orchestra. Uh, But I had come so far in the major and enjoyed the history, enjoyed cohort, if you will, and enjoyed the freedom to study other disciplines at school. So, ended up with uh, a music degree behind my name. Awesome. Uh, now, I'm kind of curious, uh, do, you, do you still play violin? Do you find pleasure and joy in, in music? Oh, I find all sorts of pleasure and joy in music. And, um, that. and I... Um, sleep close. Well, <laughs> pre-COVID, uh, yeah. worship music, which is is uh, um, a different than the classical training that I've had, but um, lots of joy in that experience. Um, now that our services are online, um, um, I have not yet gone back to the physical service, which means I have not gone back to serving with the worship team. Um, And I do miss that. Um, And then periodically I get together with friends and we'll play chamber music. Although I I know a lot of adults can relate to trying to coordinate schedules with friends Mm -hmm. to do things. And we probably spend more time talking about getting together than we actually do. But yeah, music is a huge part of my life. Thank you. On the on the business side, I know a lot of your work has been in diversity and inclusion. Do you mind telling me a little bit about that work and why why and from my perspective, uh, a question embedded in that why it's so important today to to embrace diversity and inclusion? So I started my career in retail. I um, started in a training program with a um, department store chain and and executive training program. And that was really designed to um, develop buyers for the organization. And at the time, I enjoyed um, creating my own designs. I did a lot of sewing and knitting and thought, oh, this will be great training so Mm -hmm. that someday I can have my own boutique. And... I fell in love with retail. I fell in love with the numbers side of the business and just um, ended up having an opportunity to work with several different operating divisions of a national retailer. And along the way, our family was experiencing a change. I was married at the time and uh, my husband was called pastor church in Columbus, Ohio. And um, we were living in Pittsburgh at the time. And so clearly I needed to make a decision about my career and, um, you know, what what that move would mean for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and learned at that time that there were, so this would have been in the late uh, 1990s, 
um, learned that there were corporations that pursued diversity um, or diversity and inclusion as a business strategy. And that just had not been on my radar. Um, you know, growing up in Iowa and even attending Yale and, and playing violin, I was certainly very accustomed to being um, the only black person in the room or one of a few. Um, but through that exploration, I learned that I was the highest ranking African-American female in a company with 130,000 employees. And, you know, we were on the, on the verge of the, of the 21st century. And I thought, I don't, I don't think that's an accomplishment. I don't yeah. think that's really something to be proud of. And ended up proposing a DNI role for the corporation um, to kind of help align, um, to help establish strategy and then align the practices from all of the operating divisions. And so that was with the former May department stores. And that's how I got into this work. And I have to tell you at that point, again, I'd fallen in love with retail. I had worked with several different operating divisions. Um, I knew the culture of the corporation. I knew the business. Um, and I really had a very gratifying career and said, you know, I, I think I'm the right person to, to take this on. So that's how I got into the work. So if I'm here that you, you were able to create a diversity and inclusion role for the organization, is that I right? Sure, I did. So oh, that's great. Um, you know, it's a, a $15 billion retailer at the time. Now it's, yeah. now it's folded into Macy's. Right. Um, but Still, I would say one of my proudest career accomplishments, uh, proposing that role. And what's kind of funny is, um, as you may recall, I, it, it all came about at a time when my husband was preparing to become the, the lead pastor at a church in Columbus, Ohio. And the headquarters for May Department Stores was in St. Louis, Missouri. So when I proposed the role, um, it also was with the idea that I would commute from um, from Ohio. And I kind of laugh now when right. we think about <laughs> working yeah. from home and what that means in today's environment. Um, but the first time that I proposed it, the feedback was, you know, this is um, a great idea. Anne's the right person for it, but she would absolutely have to be based in St. Louis. And then six months later, there was a change in leadership um, at the corporation and um, kind of an openness to, to revisiting the conversation. Um, and so I became the vice president of diversity for the former May department stores. And um, initially I did work in St. Louis um, for you know Monday through Thursday. Um, so I was either in St. Louis or traveling around the country. And then I'd work from home on Fridays. And over the years that sort of became more of a 50-50 split. Um, but yeah, I would still, yeah. still say, you know, 20 years later, one of one of my proudest accomplishments was proposing that position and helping shape it and really shaping the the diversity and inclusion strategy for the company. That that's great, and uh, just just thinking about uh, what a kind of wild ride the you know the, the past two decades from uh, changing in in re retail. Right as like you know the the beginning of e-commerce and what that meant for changing shopping experiences, but then also like you said uh, you know the the idea of telecommuting or working remotely or working from home uh, 
you know, wasn't, wasn't, you know, especially COVID now, right? Everybody is, right. that can is able to do it, right? So it's just some tremendous changes too that were probably hard to fathom 20 years ago. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, then on days when I was working from home, people would call or maybe said, I'm sorry to interrupt you, you know, or I hope I'm not interrupting yeah. you. And so I had to get comfortable with saying, hey, I'm working. This is fine. <laughs> right, right. One of the things I'm really interested in about diversity and inclusion, and as a little bit of background, a lot of my master's uh, academic work was around uh, group dynamics, uh, team communication, high-performing teams, and uh, still do a lot of that in my professional life today. And a lot of it extends into design and innovation. And one of the things I find most interesting and challenging actually for folks is that actually the more diverse the team, the better the output. From a, from a research perspective, diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. And seeing more and more data, like from Harvard Business Review, for example, of also uh, the more diverse the team, the better they are at problem solving. And I'm so, and yet when I go in and work with innovation teams, I, I won't name the company, but a, a large, <laughs> a large global company who is struggling with uh, innovation. But when I when I was doing a workshop with their C suite. It was it was basically white males, fifty to sixty five, and. One of the things I, I think is hard is they all they all see the world the same way, so they they can't they can't even see other things or opportunities. But I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how do you talk about the the business the business value or getting people on board on what is the potential for diversity and inclusion? When I started this work, people often talked about the business case for diversity. I mean, there were all sorts of platitudes. There's the business case for the diversity. Um, you would hear, you know, it's the it's a moral imperative or um, it's a business imperative, um, and that that what I sometimes refer to as the proverbial business case yep. kind of went something like this. You know, the um, United States is, and then I'm going to talk U.S focused, at least initially, right. is becoming increasingly um, racially and ethnically diverse. At, uh, at the time, the um, data showed that by the year 2050, people of color would no longer be a statistical minority in the country. Um, of course, footnote, that's now uh, accelerated to 2040 or maybe even a little sooner. Right. Um, and so what that means in terms of the talent pool and what that means in terms of consumers um, and what that means in terms of um, leadership. I, I think the best business case story that, um, that I have to tell or that I enjoy telling um, has to do with one of my daughters when, you know, I have two daughters and a son and they're all adult, uh, young adults now. Mm -hmm. um, I still call them children. Right. Um, <laughs> they, um, but when the, the girls were both into Barbie dolls and my one daughter, my second daughter, when she was seven, um, was looking at the catalogs. And back then, you know, when, this, again, before e-commerce was a big thing, mm -hmm. um, we would receive these catalogs with, 
the designer dolls and uh, the dolls that were wearing $400 and $500 um, gowns. And she made a comment one day, mommy, why do they only show the face for the African-American doll? What if, you know, what if somebody wants to see the whole outfit? And so you can envision um, a catalog, if you will, or a, a, you know, direct mail piece that has the full body of the Caucasian Barbie doll and then a little box, or it's called an inset with just the face of the African-American doll. And my seven-year-old asked that question. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm a retailer and I'm, you know, worked in marketing. I mean, I've been a buyer. I kind of get this stuff. And so, she, I, and, and of course, I like to think that I was a great mom. So <laughs> we turned that into a teaching moment. And uh, she wrote a letter to the CEO of Mattel and basically said, you know, my name is Rebecca. I'm seven years old. I have a lot of Barbies. And then I attached a cover note um, that talked about an experience that we had with our older daughter, the, the Christmas that her dad literally went to four different Toys R Us um, in sort of a 90 mile radius around Hartford, Connecticut um, to try to find an African-American my size Barbie. And so the 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 lesson that well so the response came from customer service you know we didn't mean to offend um if you want to see the full lineup we encourage you to go visit the our website um the decisions about what stores carry are you know made by the stores um here are a couple of coupons and so my daughter was very excited about the coupons for me the lesson is who was in a position of leadership to pose the question that my seven-year-old daughter asked? Right. Not that, you know, maybe, maybe asking the question wouldn't have changed the strategy, but just to have the conversation. But in yep. this case, I would surely say, I mean, and now 20 years later, we know, I mean, she's 25 now. We know how the world is, how, how the world has changed and how purchasing has changed. But just think about um, the, the sales that are just literally being left on the table or on the table because there's no one there to offer that perspective. And so then that comes back to who is in a position of leadership and how do you develop a talent pipeline so that you can gain those perspectives. And so, yes, race is a part of that. It's not the only one, as you know. I mean, they're visible and invisible aspects mm -hmm. of diversity. Um, mm -hmm. I, generally, I Generally, I describe diversity as the things that make us unique. And so, um, you know, that, that talent pipeline, and so then you think about what are you offering your consumers Who's thinking like your consumers? How are you um, attracting and developing that talent? And oh, by the way, we still live in a world that has a lot of segregation mm -hmm. and that has a lot of inequity, which means if your organization isn't intentional about creating an environment that is welcoming to, to um, diverse perspectives and diverse backgrounds and experiences, which is what where your perspective comes from, then you're not going to have leaders at the table who will think 
to ask questions that my seven-year-old daughter asked. Right. Yeah. Thank. Thank you. And thinking about the a couple things too that from from my perspective on the on the business side. So a lot of work that I do is is you know kind of broadly categorized as human centered design. And when I built design teams or or now consult with companies, one of the big things that we talk about two element being intentional about your design, but the the other is not being uh, self referential. Because, you know, if you keep designing for yourself, you're not understanding what's out there. And so both from the uh, team diversity perspective, but then also making sure you're getting outside of of your office and you're willing to understand what the real world is doing. And and more importantly, what those those goals and needs are of customers and potential customers. And that's where I see... Also, like you said, different different types of diversity, and even like socioeconomic. So when you have uh, people at the top of a, a corporation that that have a comfortable living, right? The, you know, some of some of the day to day problems or struggles they they don't even enter their head on why somebody might need a product or service or how they might use it. And so, right. I really really appreciate your your description too of of diversity and and perspectives. Yeah. And this you, you, oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You you also um, I think use the word team or teamwork. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about um, teams and effective teams and innovation, and uh, you, you've referenced the studies that indicate, um, uh, you know, there's there's. McKinsey has one that talks about, and others, yep. from a financial standpoint, that corporations with um, more diverse um, leadership uh, perform better um, financially. And and I'm quick to add, it's a, um, um, now I'm going to forget the word, yeah. not a correlation, but a... Um, I mean, not causal, but but yep. but, but correlation. So so right. I didn't say that very eloquently. Um, but it's when you think about teams. Um, I mean, teams are made up of individuals. Yep. And the individuals are interacting with each other's, which means there's a relationship. Could be good relationships. Could be not so good. <laughs> right. And so the thing is, I mean, one of the things that I I certainly have learned in my life is that genuine relationships take work. And that's true in our personal life. That's true in our professional life. Um, And if we, you know, it's easy to get along generally with people who share your interests or share your background. Um, um, but but again, in, in this world that we live in where, again, there's so much inequity and now we, I think, is, are talking in a renewed way, maybe, about, re, uh, about racism, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it takes work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... Um... I've, I've talked about on the, on like the team side is, you know, much like, you know, I, I, I'll use a, sometimes a garden analogy is that you, you have to put in the work, right. If it's going to yield results and it's not just a one-time thing, right. It's not like you just planted seeds in the garden, then you get to walk away and come back. And, right. and so you, you have to keep cultivating it. And yeah. And so I, I appreciate that uh, perspective 
and wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about, and this, this might be a ham-fisted question on my part, but in, in my professional career where I see diversity, and I feel like it's more recent that we've seen inclusion as part of diversity and inclusion and inclusion being more uh, intentional and explicit in, in the term. Can you tell me about the inclusion side of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. So if, so diversity, I'd say is the differences that make people unique. Inclusion is providing a space so that people can contribute their unique perspectives. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll just like that. I, I'm excited about that too, because that's, uh, you know, when you, when you dig into the data on uh, uh, team performance and one of the things that it comes back to is a foundational piece of um, providing a safe space and safe place for teams to operate and for individuals to discuss ideas. Yeah. And that seems to be the core of winning strategies. And so that's where I feel like it, inclusion is making that space for the different individuals to, to participate Everybody has a seat at the table and is expected to participate and is allowed to participate where I feel like from some, some of my friends, I feel like sometimes companies would try diversity, but it might be more like diversity theater um, rather than inclusion. Is that, is that fair that inclusion is a necessary step that was overlooked? I, um, I, I think that um some would say there's been, you know, over the last 50 years, sort of this um, trajectory of, of affirmative, you know, civil rights and affirmative action and diversity and then inclusion. And now you're hearing the word equity um, mm -hmm. more. Um, and so while I'm not going to try to get academic on, on, <laughs> on those words, I am a bit of a wordsmith. Yeah. And, and I heard you say, um, you, you know, a space where people are allowed to contribute. Mm -hmm. And I want to substitute a different word instead of allowed. I would say encouraged, which means it takes work. It yep. takes effort. It, it's not going to happen. You can't just say we want people to contribute. You have to demonstrate uh, because it may not come naturally. And, and there's plenty of research that says when somebody is a, uh, in the minority, you know, um, looks different than others or, or whatever that difference might be, mm -hmm. um, it's harder to, um, statistically speaking, it's harder to develop trusting relationships. Right. We have an exercise, one of my favorite exercises to use, um, and if I'm facilitating or just having a discussion, is to encourage people to think about a time when they looked or felt different from those around them. And the point of the exercise is not to share what that scenario was, but to take time to just jot down what were the emotions, mm -hmm. what was going through your head during that experience. And as you may or may not guess, the responses every time I do that are very similar. 
the majority of the people will say, I felt awkward. I felt undervalued. I felt like nobody was paying attention. I was afraid to say something, I, you mm-hmm. know, a, and, and a list of, of what I'll characterize as negative emotions. Um, and every once in a while, somebody will say, oh, I felt energized. You know, it was a new, new environment. I guess. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> um, but, but just that idea that's, that, that it, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, really, I really appreciate the, the, the emphasis on encouragement. Uh, and as you, as you were kind of walking through that exercise, that's, I was thinking back to feelings of almost like, uh, almost a nervous, like energy in my stomach, right? But yeah, yeah awkwardness. And so then, then when you're feeling a little bit awkward, uh, going back to kind of improv and sports, it's like playing tight, right? You're not relaxed. You're not, you're not able to, you you play tight and you're not yourself. And, uh, and you cannot contribute your best. Exactly. And it's, it's, to me, it's also emotionally exhausting, right? So Exactly. Yes, uh, it is. So yeah, thank I really appreciate that. I want to talk, switch gears just a little bit to uh, one of, one of the things that you had shared with me that you're working on is the uh, part of Iowa's healthiest state, uh, the make it okay campaign. Do you yeah. mind talking a little bit about uh, Make It Okay and, and your role and kind of the goals of that initiative? I would love to talk about that. So Make It Okay is a campaign to reduce stigma um, around mental illness. And so the idea is to start conversations and really increase the understanding. And so Iowa, the Iowa Healthiest State Initiative um, is running a statewide Make It Okay campaign. And I've been uh, able to kind of do some volunteer work with um, uh, uh, the Lynn County rollout effort. Um, I recently, or I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm in a career transition. And before I made the decision to, um, to make that change, I identified this project, if you will, as something where I really wanted to devote some time. And part, you know, when we were talking about inclusion and feeling like you and feeling like you contribute, part of this of my interest really is born out of my own journey with mental illness. I was um, given a diagnosis of bipolar type two uh, back in 2008. And I think you used the uh, phrase before emotionally exhausting. And so that, that would really be a way of characterizing um, uh, much of how I was operating at work because I, for the first 10 years, I hid that diagnosis. I hid it at work. I hid it um, really even in my family. I mean, they, they knew, but I mean, um, hid it there, hid it in, in my community work and um, was constantly hiding not just the diagnosis, but how I was striving to understand the diagnosis and manage what was happening in my body um, physically as well as chemically. And so I was really, um, as part of my journey, I started talking about that um, really on my 10th anniversary. 
And as I've started sharing my own story, have had opportunities to get involved in community efforts around mental illness and now specifically make it okay. So we have um, an effort here in Lynn County that will be doing a rollout. We are um, kind of putting up, putting some finishing touches on a virtual series that will um, take place in August through November. Um, so it has not yet been formally announced. Um, but the idea is to, you know, have experts and everyday individuals who can talk about strategies and lived experiences. So um, really glad to be part of that effort and just ma literally make it okay, make it okay to talk mm -hmm. about, um, I guess my own way of thinking about it as I reflect on my career and, and granted, I'm, I'm very grateful for the career that I've had so many I've had so many opportunities um, and I will say, you know, success, what, what many would consider success along the way and certainly some failures too. Um, but I realized that I wasn't bringing my whole self to work and um, it's no way to live and it's no way to thrive. Mm -hmm. And I am um, particularly passionate, I am particularly passionate about making it easy for people to self-identify and you, nobody needs to know all the details trust me but there's still it needs to be easy to self-identify and um, for employers and others but particularly employers to make it easy for employees to get help and so um, this is still very much a journey for me. I'm still learning how to talk about my own experiences. Um, cause again, nobody needs to know all the details. Right. Um, but just to, to be able to make a difference in the lives of others. Um, there, there's a statistic that says one in five people will experience a mental illness in their life. Now that's a pre COVID experience statistic. Mm -hmm. So with the onset of the, the pandemic, there was a survey that said, you know, nearly half of adults said COVID was having a, a negative impact on, um, on their mental health. And, and so it's, 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 it's another example of we as a society are talking about mental health in a renewed way, I will say. And specifically, I want mental illness uh, for us to be able to talk about that and act on it um, without the stigma. Thank you. Uh, a question, because uh, we were referring to kind of the, the exhausting portion of it. Now, now that you're able to, to talk about it publicly, are, is there a sense of relief or, I'm just, or is it less exhausting? I'm just kind of curious about your, your own kind of personal uh, feeling. So there's, there's a huge sense of relief. And anytime I do share my story, I'll hear maybe from one person, maybe two, but even just one person who has an own story, who has their own story, either whether it's their own experience or an experience with a family member. And that um, provides lots of encouragement for me about how just important this is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, your question, is it still exhausting? I'm, I'm pausing to think about that question. Um, it's, it's, it's still frustrating, I would say. Yeah. Is probably more so than exhausting. Because even with, um, you know, just as, as with any illness, things change and prescriptions have to be tweaked from time to time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, while, you know, <laughs> my psychiatrist reminded me we're in this for the long game. So, you know, <laughs> you don't make a change every time you have an appointment. Right. Um, right. you know, and, and, and so it, it's frustrating, but part of it is now that, um, part of my journey is being more in tune to my body. And if I notice a change, kind of thinking about, okay, well, what might be causing that change? And is there something that I can do um, in my schedule or some activity um, that will help sort of bring back an equilibrium? Thanks. Yeah, and I think part of what I was uh, kind of the optimistic side in me is my belief is also when people can be more of their authentic self it's it's less exhausting so i didn't obviously don't want to Absolutely. diminish the the frustration part I, but it, yeah if it's just like a little bit more sense of relief that it it's out there this is who i am this is you know, so, this is the ann carter package right yeah, yeah right so um what the way that you have characterized it, Matt, is is spot on. It is absolutely less emotionally exhausting. Absolutely. So so let me let me be clear about yeah. that. I guess the reason why I hesitate um, is that I didn't recognize just how exhausting it was yeah. until I was a little bit on the other side, mm-hmm. and I'm not totally. You know, it's not like I'm cured. Um, you know, and I still deal with stuff. So there's a piece of me that kind of holds back because I'm not sure what's coming next. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, you know, for me, and this was, this was pre COVID, but you know, I was fairly recently diagnosed with moderate anxiety and depression. And, uh, you know, for me, sometimes just knowing what it is, is a little bit more helpful. It's, um, and I think what I was hearing from you and my experience, it's also, Wait now, I'm I'm recognizing that pattern, and so now I can do, I can try to be more explicit or intentional about, like yeah, seeking that equilibrium or uh, uh, course correcting a little bit earlier <laughs> before I go off the road. Yeah. And, and part of it too is just sharing a little bit about my diagnosis um, and my experiences has brought relief to me. Part of learning how to manage it is what do I say to people and how when I'm when I'm in a in a down phase or I'm in a hypomanic phase and I mm-hmm. haven't slept and and you know how do I articulate to those who and, and I'll say family in particular in a way that's not complaining necessarily but more kind of a hey here's a heads up. Yep. And and what's happened is they start to observe stuff in me and they'll say things or, Hey, I noticed, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, and so help comes in different ways. Help certainly has come through um, medication, but, um, but, but behavior and, and again, just being able to talk about it and asking for help, learning how to ask for help 
and learning what kind of help I need has been right. has been really huge. So yeah, thank you for sharing with me about what you've you've experienced. Yeah, no, thank thank you. Uh, one of the things I wanted to add if, for listener, and we, we'll have a, we'll have a link to the the healthiest state and make it okay campaigns that'll be in the the uh, web description for the episode. But I wanted to just ask you, kind of, if you were to sum up the kind of make it okay, what what might somebody do that's here or seeking help if there's like one. And there might not be a simple piece of advice, but is there one one good step or two that they might be able to take related to the campaign? Related to the campaign or related to care? Related, well, related to the campaign. Um, if you go to um, the the make it okay Iowa site on the healthiest mm-hmm. state initiative. Um, first, you know, there's some information there, but first step is there's a pledge and it's a very short pledge about um, basically not, not being silent. Mm-hmm. So that's one action that anybody can take. Um, there's also um, employers can register their workplaces. And when the, when employers register, they, um, uh, you know, have access to um, specific resources. There's an employer toolkit, for example. Um, so, so those are those are two things that are um, available immediately. Thanks. Yeah, that's that. Part of part of the campaign too. I was curious on just and the, and and you hit on on it. Just the pieces of advice that you might have or resources that people might might use to to explore as they're they're on their path. Um, this is completely switching gears, but I want to go, go back to when, uh, you were talking about your own personal journey. If it's, if you don't mind sharing a little bit, you, you grew up in a historically significant house in the area. Are you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mentioned I was born and raised in Cedar Rapids and Dad is known as the the first black doctor in Cedar Rapids. And when he finished his internship, um, he and my mother had seven children and they needed a larger home. Um, By the way, while they ended up living in a house that was across the street from the hospital and this would have been, uh, he started in 1957. Okay. And um, the, the beauty of living across the street from the hospital is that the nurses knew that he was only, you know, <laughs> just across the street. And so from an ER, from, a, from in terms of emergency cases, he um, uh, was the the person that could respond the most quickly right and that I, helped him in, 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 in effect that helped him build his um practice because people got to know him thank you um so in in 58 um he began his practice and was ready to look for housing and it was literally multiple occurrences of they would get ready to go look at a property and all of a sudden it was no longer available. Um, And 
while that was before I was born, um, I think it's fair to characterize a story that they they faced um, roadblocks because of racism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, redlining was certainly still happening at that time. But um, as a result, um, an individual, uh, Robert Armstrong, Robert and Esther Armstrong, they owned a department store here in Cedar Rapids, um, became aware of what dad and mom were experiencing. And they were preparing to, the Armstrongs were preparing to donate three. So the Armstrongs were preparing to donate three plots of their land to St. Paul's United Methodist Church here in Cedar Rapids. And they did so with the request or suggestion that the church sell one of those plots to my parents. And it's, it's a well-documented um, situation. Um, my, if you will, knowledge of the story is that there was a petition uh, to prevent the Negroes from moving into um, this neighborhood because that would harm the property values of the other neighbors. And it wasn't a very Christian thing to help one neighbor and not and hurt so many. Um, that um, the church had um, a really interesting and rather contentious meeting where they were taking a vote. And, and ultimately, um, the church did vote to sell the land to my parents and they built the house where I now live today. So I, uh, it's, it's special for me. Well, it's, it's special period. Right. Particularly special because I was the first child. I'm the eighth child. I was the first child born in this home and, um, and now uh, live in this home, which is certainly something that I never expected, but just funny how life yeah, coming close to time. One of the, one of the things that uh, I ask all my guests is I ask about advice, and you know, either good advice they received uh, along their journey, or uh, you know, I steal from the book called "Steal Like an Artist" from Austin Kleon, where he says, "When we give advice, we're talking to our younger self." So sometimes, what might you know, advice that you didn't get? <laughs> uh, do you wish you had? But either, if you don't mind sharing with folks like some good advice you had along the way or things that you wish you would have for the recording but she talked about um some details what i remember is that there was a situation that involved putin mm -hmm. and her toddler was trying to get her attention she was on the phone and basically you know the toddler putin 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 When's it going to be about me, 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 or whatever, you know, something <laughs> like that. And it just, um, you know, that idea that, you know, we all are trying to balance. Uh, and yet you, I'm very much a you can have it all um, person. Um, it's, it's how do you balance it or how do you integrate things so that you can, can do it all when when the time is right. Again, I'm not saying that very eloquent, yeah. eloquently, yeah. 
But as she went on to tell the story, she also talked about just some of the world problems that they faced and how, you know, it's like any other problem. You kind of tackle it a chunk at a time. Um, and so that is a lesson that, that comes back to me over and over again. I wish I could tell that story again because I don't think I told it well. But the, the other thing about advice I just want to add is I, I reached out to, to my children, my adult children, yeah. to ask them, you know, what what advice do you remember, you know, me telling you over the years? And there, there are a few things that they talked about. One of them said, um, you know, give back and be a member of your community. And she said that actually is, is a lesson that she learned from um, my parents. Um, she remembers that I always talked about um, tone of voice and, you know, so from a communication standpoint that it's your tone of voice that means more than the words that you use. Um, and then another one talked about, she's from, for several years, apparently I said, don't get into mischief just because you're bored. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then made the point that, that the application today is be intentional about downtime. You don't have to fill it with stuff. You don't have to fill it with activity of your downtime. And so all of that, um, you know, aside from how I tackle problems or how I tackle life is sort of I, this, this journey, even that I'm on what's next in my career as I'm in, as I'm in this transition and not so much, what am I created to do, but who am I created to be mm -hmm. and how do I use my voice and how do I spend my time um, are all sort of this old somewhere, I guess maybe there's advice in there, but those, those are the big questions that, that I kind of challenge myself. And so even in terms of the bipolar two diagnosis, um, you know, how I use my voice and how I spend my time on days when I'm on the lower end of the spectrum, you know, how do I be okay with the fact that, yeah, maybe I'm just not going to get done everything that I had planned to do and being okay with that right. and understanding what productivity looks like. And that um, my sister once said, it's not that you're unproductive, just think about it being a different type of productivity, you know, and so stuff like that. It's very refreshing, but really, how do we spend our time? How do we use our voice? Who are we created to be? That's great. Thank you, Anne. I really, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you here. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure also, my honor. <laughs>